Hello, and welcome back to Throw Down, an action cinema podcast where we take you through every decade and every corner of the world of action cinema. I am Vaughn, and I'm here with my co-host Jack. Jack, how are you doing today? Good afternoon all. I'm good, Vaughn. How are you doing today? I am doing great, and I'm ready to do our best to talk about a movie that makes very little narrative (laughs) sense. Yeah, you say you're ready. I don't know if I am ready to talk about this movie. We're going to do our best. We'll give it a go. Uh, So, uh, the film we're talking about today is Time and Tide from 2000, directed by Troy Hark. And it's a movie I've seen three times in the space of about 18 months. And each viewing offers me sort of a different experience entirely. (laughs) The first time I watched it, I just had no idea. I put it on the projector, I let it play. I think I slapped three stars on it and called it a day and was like, one day I'll return to that. Returned to it maybe about three, four, five months later and was like, okay, I'm getting somewhere, I'm getting somewhere. And then when you suggested we watch this uh, for the podcast, I threw it on and just trying to take notes on this thing is is a, is a daunting challenge it is. in and of itself. <laughs> um, but explain to the folks at home what exactly Time and Tide is. Man, it's it is really hard to even like distill it down into even a broad sense of what it is about because mm-hmm. I kind of had the the same experience as you. I watched it a couple months ago and absolutely loved it but absolutely could not make sense of of the specifics mm-hmm. of the the narrative and then yeah. rewatched it for the show trying to focus on the narrative and trying to really plot out what's going on and still kind of came up with nothing. It's it's very intentionally, I think, like labyrinthine and complex, mm-hmm. and it kind of does a like Wong Kar Wai bifurcated narrative kind of thing, where it just yeah, kind of kind switches of. protagonists halfway through the film, and you kind of don't even notice that that takes over. It dips around between characters and time zones as well, yeah. Sort of with, without announcing them, so you kind of just have to keep up with the film. The film the film is like paced really unevenly which is i think is kind of the the energy that troy hark is going for here like it's a really frantic oh definitely yeah uh edit of what should be a really simple by the numbers just sort of crime syndicate story but it's the way that he presents it in the final form that kept me confused for the first second and third viewing (laughs) of time and tide really it's very, it's very turn of the century, overcranked stylization, and it reminded me. I've been watching a lot of Tony Scott recently. It reminded me a lot of yeah. that kind of thing, where it's just like all out crazy stylization, and you kind of just get lost in it, but in a good way. Yeah, it's like a, a bombardment of style and different sort of stylistic approaches to these sort of action movies. And in in Troy Hark's lengthy filmography, in the chronology of his films, he'd just done two american movies with john claude van damme yes. um knockoff and double team which both have like aspects of some of the stylistic um abrasiveness Definitely. that time and tide has but i feel like yeah this is just kind of a, a, a another sort of beast on its own i was reading that there is or the, the original cut was about three hours yeah, long, the which same. kind of makes sense trying to chop that down to like a what is this just just shy of two hours yeah, yeah. just about two so some scenes feel just completely way too short some scenes feel like unevenly long and it's there's that sort of 
sort of disparage between the two trying to keep this choppy narrative trying to keep up with the choppy narrative and and just try and focus in on that this should be relatively straightforward <laughs> story but then once you get to the back end of this movie i think that's when it really oh definitely its own yeah um with the sort of the the sort of massive set pieces and the the action elements towards the end of this just outstanding and that's when i just sort of sat down and told myself like okay i know vaguely where we are who we are what we're doing but it's mainly the the filmmaking techniques on display right kind of what draws me a lot with two troy hark movies i feel like throughout his filmography there have been a plenty of like fine stories but it's really the way he showcases different filmmaking elements in in his typical frantic (laughs) embodied style that i really really enjoy yeah, you definitely, I think, have to accept a level of that just kind of going with the flow of, of his filmmaking style because it is a lot of that where it's just kind of like the narrative just kind of simmers in the background while he does this this very expressive action stuff. And if you're one of the, the kind of person who is very focused on keeping track of the narrative, it's I can definitely understand finding his uh, his work a little bit grating, but if you can accept that you're not going to be able to make complete sense of it and just enjoy the the way that he expresses it all through the action. I think it's it is really a phenomenal movie. The way we're describing it sounds like it's completely impenetrable and there is no grounding and you can't find your feeding at any point. But there are like basic character progressions and developments and plot beats and you can you can kind of grasp onto the the sort of central narrative thrust of our main characters and what they're going through, but it's the fact that the film just sort of throws you in kind of at the deep end and never really gives you a chance to catch up with what it's laying down. Like, there will be a point where there's like a nine-month uh, time skip Yeah, just meant to just keep rolling with the movie and picking up new characters, and as you say, we pretty much swap protagonists yeah. at some point in the movie, and that's just... You just got to keep rolling with it if you want to. If it's, you want to make sense of time. Yeah, time. it's really interesting because it's all of it is connected, and it there is a way that you can can plot it out and make sense of it. But the way it's presented is very much like scene to scene. Everything is kind of like just this non sequitur approach of like mm-hmm. it moves on to the next thing, and there's no real grounding in terms of where that came from or what's going on. And it's only later that you can kind of say, "Oh, this is what built to that, and this is how this is linked mm-hmm. together." very segmented in that way where you understand little individual moments and individual beats but not necessarily how they fit in the grand scheme of the movie until later periods of the film when you sort of have time to reflect on how we've got to the the climactic parts of the film yeah sort of situate characters and situate little motives and things so broadly i guess and again it's (laughs) going to be hard to even kind of get through this but the the main character who's um or the the first main character i should say who's played by nicholas say he gets drunk one night and sleeps with he's a cop and he gets drunk one night and he sleeps with a lesbian that he meet a lesbian cop uh-huh. that he meets and yeah. so she gets pregnant and has his kid but mm-hmm. she wants nothing to do with him and so then he has to, he, he wants to try and provide for his kid but Mm -hmm. she doesn't want anything to do with him so he takes like an independent bodyguard job to try and make some extra money to give to her yep (laughs) he gets he gets involved in this web of yeah contract for hire bodyguard shenanigans so Um, he starts working for anthony wong 
who's kind mm-hmm. of the the boss and in in the process of him just getting started in this this narrative thread he starts dreaming of being free and moving to south america and that's kind of like the first weird non sequitur thing is he starts mm-hmm. thinking about being in brazil and how free and sunny it would be and so then it just cuts to Brazil, and there's a completely, seemingly disconnected action sequence that plays out with a team of Brazilian mercenaries in this crazy yep. shootout sequence. And it just makes, it seems like it makes no sense at all. No, at the time, you're just sort of thrust, you're like, is this, an, is this a different set of characters? Are we in a dream sequence? Right, like, you feel like you missed something. Yeah, oh, 100%, which feel like, when reading about the three-hour cut, I'm like, how much of this two-hour cut is elongated into those three hours or how much is taken out of those three hours yeah. how much of the the like purposely confusing and uh sort of misleading narrative is in that three-hour cut or is it just down to the edit of all that material down to the, the film that was actually finally released yeah it seems like a lot of hark stuff gets kind of caught up Chopped in that up. in that edit because i also recently watched um a better tomorrow too which very famously was had a very difficult editing process because he and uh, John Woo disagreed on what right. the film should be. And so they kind of were both editing it back and forth and it was never being agreed upon. So then they ended up sending it to like separate editors at different editing oh, houses wow. and it got like mashed together into this final product. And that movie is very like strange and kind of incoherent and Ooh, okay. doesn't quite come to together, but has a lot of great sequences in it, of course. Which I feel like a lot of, well, not a lot, but some of Joy Hark's movies sort of fall under that category yeah. for me. Like talking about those Jean Claude Van Damme movies that came before this, like Double Team is a very strange movie. It <laughs> um, is. Yeah, that's, that's the Jean Claude Van Damme Dennis Rodman two hander. Such which, a weird combo. <laughs> it's such a strange combo at the get go. And then the way that that is presented and the formal narrative of that gets also like needlessly convoluted. But there yeah. is such so many different like standout moments or like action sequences where he right. really comes into his own where you can pinpoint like oh this is a Choi Hark movie the way he does certain um like filmmaking techniques just showcasing action in a in a, a variety of different ways pulling from like traditional Hong Kong style right. but also through the 90s into that sort of like millennial um style that was popular I yeah I did I was not a fan of Double Team but I mm. Knockoff was a very interesting watch because I think at first I was very kind of against it in my head and through the first uh-huh. half I was like this just isn't working but I think in in the back half of it I kind of started to understand what he was going for and mm-hmm. I started to appreciate um kind of the expression of it a lot more so it's one I'd like to go back to and kind of see if I can and glean a lot more from it because I think uh his kind of attempt at doing this overcranked American stylization is is quite interesting, and it's definitely clear that he took that and brought it back to a lot of what's going on in Time and Tide. Yeah, oh, 100%, because if you look before those films, you have The Blade, which is a movie we both love, but yes. it's very much a... Um, not not by the numbers but it's very straight laced in the ways that it approaches the the narrative at hand it is pretty coherent and cohesive and it, you can yeah. pretty much string along through that so it's interesting as you said earlier like the, the sort of tony scott isms of that yeah. overly bombastic throw everything at the wall and see what sticks style how he's handling that over in america and then bring it back to hong kong to make time and tide this 
purposefully sort of confusing it's like you're watching a movie through a prism of light or something yeah, you're trying yeah. to you're seeing like fragments and ideas that you can purposely put together and you can make sense of but the, the entire experience is is difficult and often off-putting but there is a, an inept like charm to the whole thing by the time oh definitely final climax so the first time watching it i was just trying to nail down you know these characters right and this this larger narrative at hand and by the by the three quarters mark i think i'd just sort of thrown in the towel and was just kind of quite a little disappointed in the movie at that point just because i really wanted to yeah really latch on to what's going on on screen and it, it it the movie makes it difficult i'm not gonna lie it is not a yeah uh, is a, a a coherent um narrative to to follow along it's definitely the instinct, of course, to try and understand what mm. the the narrative threads of anything are. And I think a lot of the time when you get something that is intentionally kind of obfuscated and confusing, it, it telegraphs it a lot more. There's stuff that's like very clearly like you're in this kind of dreamscape or this is mm -hmm. intentionally, you know, hazy and dreamy. But this doesn't sure. really do that. This kind of just goes all out. And it's not until I think you kind of reach the end and you're like, I don't think I was really supposed to be able to put any of that <laughs> yeah. together. So it's, no, it it's really if you can get on board with it or not. It doesn't signpost when it's going to zig and zag or take right. a left turn. It just does that. So like the complex plot is interweaving these, these storylines and you're, you're trying to keep up with it. But part of the, the appeal and the intricacies of time and tide is just to sort of go with it and let it wash over you to a point. Yeah. It's interesting you mentioned the blade because I think this does have an interesting kind of connective tissue there. It's the same same team of, of people writing it, and that's Choi Hark wrote it with um, Kwan Hui, who um, also wrote the blade with him. So I think it's an and I think there is uh, an interesting connection between the two because I think they're both doing kind of similar things in different genres. I think the blade kind of takes that that wuxia template and just like kind of goes mad with it and totally mm -hmm. kind of deconstructs it and goes hyper violent with it and i think this kind of does a a similar thing for that kind of heroic bloodshed template where it just kind of goes all right we're going to take these these ideas of kind of this this bloody brotherhood kind of thing and just go over the top and crazy with it but this definitely does take that narratively incoherent approach where the blade you can definitely track what's going on it's much more mm -hmm. straightforward yeah, they both sort of take their respective genres to like the logical conclusions. Yeah, as you say like the blade almost feels like the wuxia movie to end all wuxia movies. Definitely it's doing so much within that that time tested genre. And here with the heroic bloodshed stuff, it is pulling from things that have been happening in in that subgenre for like two decades, three decades at this point, and just twisting them and turning them into almost like an avant garde expression. Really, yeah, it's. Yeah it's 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 madness to try and pinpoint down everything that's happening on screen but to to as like a, a tonal mood piece and as a piece of action cinema i think it's 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 absolutely fascinating it really is i mean just the when you take the the individual sequences on their own and kind of mm -hmm. when you choose to kind of just get lost in the narrative and to not worry too much about where each piece is moving it's definitely doing doing a lot um it's interesting I, I did read that um or find it's mm. shot the cinematography is done by herman yao who is also a prolific hong kong director who mostly does a lot of like um 
DTV kind of stuff. Um, okay, right. But he did uh, The Untold Story and Ebola uh, Syndrome. Course, Ebola Syndrome, yeah. He's done a couple of, like, <clears throat> of those I- IP man, it man, uh, like, spin-off sequels that aren't really classified oh, okay. as the main Donnie Yen canon. Yeah. I haven't seen them yet, but... Um, yeah, uh, Herman Yao cinematography-wise, he's worked with Choi Hark on a couple yeah. of different things, but none I've actually seen yet. They're sort of like deeper cuts in his filmography. A lot of 2000s stuff, like his remake of Zoo Warriors, um, Seven Swords, and Vampire Hunters. <laughs> yeah, Herman Yao's interesting. He also... I mean, he's done some some plenty of action himself. Um, I really like uh, Taxi Hunter. is a pretty great movie. Uh, and mm-hmm. he's still working today. I think he had like three movies come out last year. Like he just he just cranks them out. I, yeah, I I, do, I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> the Hong Kong film industry, although the, the sort of like Chinese film industry seems to just absolutely crank movies out like more than they ever did in the eighties and nineties. Really, like twenty twenty three, twenty twenty four slates are just absolutely wild with titles you'll never really even hear of. They yeah, won't really make a splash overseas at all. But I'm glad they're still finding work. Oh, they sure are. Um, but, but anyway, so the uh, the sequences themselves to kind of go through kind of what the the different action mm-hmm. sequences are. I mean, I kind of I briefly mentioned that initial um, shootout in Brazil, which is just the like Brazilian absolute fever dream. madness, and introduces our our villain Miguel, who yep. is uh, this Spanish dreadlocked villain who uh, just kind of is always casual and never really worried about anything, and he just kind of rolls through the movie and is always uh on the opposing side and trying to to take out our our second protagonist specifically <laughs> yes, is, is second. who is he in in conflict yes, with Nicholas Tse is playing Tyler and then uh Wu Bai is playing Jack so that's always always interesting to be able to pinpoint at any given time but yes Miguel as a, an antagonist is a very a very well sort of crafted sort of visual appearance of a villain yeah. or an antagonist i think he's very distinguishable um from from everyone else going on and there's just a, like a villainous presence to him throughout those action sequences and that first sequence really is like even in the context of you can understand it later in the film because you can kind of mm-hmm. plot it backwards and understand the significance of that sequence but even then it's still kind of just like out of nowhere and not really necessary because it's not quite connected to anything particularly important. It's it's not connected to either <laughs> of the protagonists. It's just like a setup of the antagonistic mercenary force, but it does it is a, a crazy sequence of just like constant bullets and they shoot up this room so much that you've got like all this light filtering through all the bullet yes, holes and yeah, yeah. it's just like yeah, it's amazingly shot. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of different sort of techniques implemented to make this movie look as interesting as it does. Yeah. Like it's not all shot in this this wide scope style, but there is there are moments of this levity where he will he'll just break out into a complete wide of like the cityscape that they're they're working in or tight close ups and a lot of like uh, like visual cues taken from other Hark works and it's 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 a very versatile movie that still still is interesting to unpack in scene by scene basis it's almost like a de palma movie in that you can just like every single shot is like a completely different technique and like usage of of the camera and like there's never a shot where you're just like oh this is just a a simple straightforward Uh shot like there's always something going on which is very fun to to watch and plot out like it's always like just like camera cranes and Mm -hmm. smash zooms and it's it's fantastic (laughs) 
I always appreciate a director that has their toy box and yeah. just enjoys like rooting through it and getting whatever out and trying to see right. if it works and and moving to the next idea and the next idea and really just sort of throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks in the final cut. It really does because it's like every every new sequence is like doing a whole new thing and because it goes from that that Brazilian shootout to like the next big sequence is like this almost like Mission Impossible esque like kind of thriller plotted like assassination sequence where they're trying to yeah. to foil the ana- assassination plot of Jack's father in law. Yep. At at his sure, birthday party. <laughs> like again, like it's like I'm trying yeah. to remember how everything is going down, but it's like he's putting a fake mustache on, he's going through the hallways, he's he's getting he's infiltrating this sort of scenario. But yeah, very mission impossible, very espionage yeah. led. It's very and that's kind of like the first connective tissue between the protagonists because you've got Tyler working as a bodyguard mm-hmm. at that party where Jack shows up to meet his father in law for the first time and so he's as a bodyguard. Tyler is trying to prevent the assassination of um, Jack's father-in-law, and so you get the sequence where he's like trying to point, trying to pinpoint which uh, which waiter might be suspicious, yeah. and following him following him through these kind of back hallways, and you get a, a great chase sequence out of that with carts and movement, and it's just like <laughs> yeah. So frantic it's, and crazy, but oh, in- incredibly frantic! It's never, never not moving. It's yeah. just like a speeding bullet, a speeding train that's constantly going through the motions of this narrative. And yeah, at that sort of that point in the movie, the, the, some of our connective tissue is starting to actually connect. And yeah, we're getting, a, a, getting to piece the whole thing together a bit more. But as we move through the movie and we get towards those latter um, sort of like siege sequences yeah. on the the apartment blocks, that's that's the really stunning stuff for me. Oh, definitely. I think what's phenomenal about the the action itself is that even though you've got this overarching narrative that is so impossible to to pin down, that all of these individual sequences are like perfectly coherent and nothing ever gets lost in in where the action is moving or where each character yeah. is like yeah, yeah. he's got that great innate sense of space in terms of how he's moving the characters and the camera and everything through it that you always know where everything is and what's happening it's like the complete antithesis to some of those like 2000s american action blockbusters where the narrative is very sort of by the numbers and straight yeah. and then you get to an action sequence which is practically like incomprehensible just because of the amount of cuts and the amount yeah, of exactly. that are going on it's like taken if taken right. was like completely <laughs> inversed so you don't understand necessarily the narrative beats that get you from action sequence to sequence but when you get to those action sequences it's like the most coherent thing you've ever seen everything right. is displayed um like the geography and space as you say is very well laid out and well reflected by the camera um and that's where the 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 filmmaker really like shows off and begins to shine in in those larger sort of uh, siege-esque sequences towards the end yeah that that whole tenement apartment building shootout is just like i think one of the best things in Choi hark's career it's just absolutely phenomenal and for how much space it's in, it is the same thing where it's like you perfectly understand what's going on and where everything is moving through. And I think that sequence especially really emphasizes he does a really interesting thing in this film where mm. the film has a phenomenal soundtrack and the music is awesome. Yes, yes. But at key moments, he just cuts the music out entirely and the action is just 
silent mm-hmm. and it's all like it really emphasizes the like the brutality of the action because all you hear is like the whooshing of the fists and the impacts yeah, and the impact it's just like nothing else is happening except for this exact thing and that sequence really nails that of like the music just drops out and you're just mm-hmm. getting like the the very specific action stuff and people swinging sledgehammers and everything it's fantastic it's a trait I always appreciate in like action movies at large because that was such a like overdone thing of having like a, a highly stylized action sequence to like pounding dance music, or, right? Like a really rocking sort of raucous soundtrack just to cut it completely and just have that sort of diegetic sound of just like fist on fist yeah. violence, and it just it makes those sequences stand out, and it also makes just sort of them feel a bit more impactful as well it feels like things matter there's an actual struggle there's actual sort of tension and a divide in these fight sequences rather than just a i don't know like almost like a choreographed dance almost yeah because you you don't it doesn't let you it doesn't let you really just like vibe with it like you really have Mm -hmm. to focus in on the action and the movement of it which with how well it's all spaced out and plotted it's like you get to really focus on just how phenomenally choreographed the the sequence as a whole is and you've got Mm. people jumping out of windows with fire hoses and swinging down different floors and it's like there's so many different characters and different little threads that are happening and it's happening across you know five or six floors across Mm. different sides of this tenement block and it's it you never get lost in it it's pretty it's pretty phenomenal Joy Hark saw the the climax of Die Hard, where John McClane jumps out. <laughs> Absolutely, with the, the fire hose and was like, "I'm going to do that, but like tenfold." Yeah, he I'm uses it several that. times, and it's it, it's great every time. <laughs> Ab sailing down this like very well situated apartment block, and it's such a, a versatile location. And I'm just a big fan of when like massive climactic action sequences take place over floors and floors, yeah, high rise building. It's just an easy win for me. You think of films like The Raid and you just, right. you just enjoy the, the, the tight-knit, close-knit geography and how that has to be reflected through the camera work and things. Chang Che has a great um, uh, similar film that takes place pretty much on like a high-rise of flats called Shanghai 13. We will probably cover oh, it at okay. some point. We'll but check that out. I, I, I always like how directors who are so used to working in open fields and open plains and having to take their signature style and choreography and place that inside such a yeah. small room with walls and a roof and a floor and working out how you can properly get involved in the action and and present it in a way that doesn't feel like awkward or hammy right it's such a great location because it is this this huge space with so much possibility but the individual spaces are really constricting and really confined because it's these tiny mm-hmm. apartments and you get a shocking amount of like really clear choreographed action and fist fights within these little tiny blocks and tumbling through bathrooms and kitchens oh, some and horrible horrible stunt falls some really oh, yeah. sort of like bone crunching throws to walls or just like entering a room and just like it's just like a really sort of like labyrinthian it bodies it's it's really really hard to watch at some points because it's just so visceral but i love that stuff but it's it's great because he also builds this tension of he starts to build that that gas explosion where the gas starts leaking and then you've got the you've got Tyler trying to communicate but he doesn't want to have to talk too much because he's inhaling the gas and so it's like slowly building and then you get that that explosion and it's uh he jumps in the fridge too which is a, a great yes, scene yeah I got it <laughs> and that sequence is is wild it feels very like 
almost video game inspired the way that it kind of does like a bullet time kind of thing through all the fire and explosions and he does that several times in the movie where it's just like everything freezes and it moves through this kind of cg space but it doesn't look cammy or hokey or anything it's not overly horrible like yeah the 2000 cgi again it's just another one of his tools from his vast arsenal that i like i I commend him using it would be a a very boring film if it was completely cgi like all over the place or if it was just really weird handheld stuff all over the place yeah there are there are there are pockets of each thing and each thing is part of this whole picture which works as this sort of confusing sort of action pastiche narrative yeah, it's it's pretty crazy how much he he gets out of that. But yeah, he does blend it together so well because it's it definitely feels dated and you can see a lot of those seams in the in the moments where mm-hmm. he does use the CGI stuff, but it doesn't feel it doesn't look bad at the same time. Like you can tell, but you're not like, oh, this is just dated and ugly it, and No, I don't think it detracts from no, the not at entire all. experience though. Because you'll move from that into another like bone crunching choreographed sequence. And it again is just another thing he was wor- experimenting with at the time. Like yeah. the two thousands weren't necessarily a time where we had CGI technology right. completely nailed and depending on the budget we're working on and in the Hong Kong film industry as well, not necessarily working with sort of the things we had in the West in the 2000s as to CGI technologies. But again, it's just another tool he uses to, you know, pepper a certain sequence, a a certain scene, and then we move from there. Yeah, so then we get the the after that, that crazy shootout, which almost seems like it should be the climactic moment of the film, but no, you've got yeah. multiple action sequences to come, and then it goes to this kind of goes to like a shootout in a mall, and now it's so we've got this the apartment building was full daytime, and then it moves to this mm-hmm. the finale's all kind of in this twilight darkness, and um, so you've got a shootout in the mall, and that's kind of where the the climax really begins because the the secondary plot, or I guess, yeah, the secondary plot with Jack, um, his wife is also one of the characters, and she is currently pregnant. And so you get Jack's wife, who is in the mall and is pregnant. And then, of course, because it's the the climactic sequence of an action movie, uh, she is about to give birth in the middle of this of shootout. Course. <laughs> of course. It so was then, uh, timing, sod's law. Yeah, so Tyler, who's still there, is now attempting to... Uh, get her to safety or get her a medic and of course there's no ability to do that so he has to find a uh, a place to keep her safe so she can give birth in the middle of this this mind-melting action sequence with tear gas galore and yeah it's going wrong and it's just it's just and the um there's like a, a concert going on nearby which yep. sort of uh, comes out as well so there's more sort of just people and the stampeding sort of floorboards oh yeah so you've got going on in this. you've got tyler and jack's wife in this kind of mall area figuring that whole thing out and then jack is heading to his final showdown with miguel in the concert mm-hmm. arena and you've yep. got this concert going on and everyone's kind of raving and psyched up and there's a whole action sequence happening above them that they can't notice because it's so loud and they're like up on the rafters and miguel's planting grenades everywhere (laughs) it's such a cartoony villain moment oh yeah (laughs) destruction for the sake of destruction yeah definitely there's never really a a clear motivation other than there's been like a a fallout between jack and the uh, the mercenaries 
but yeah, the sort of hierarchy he operates yeah. within have, has turned against him and that's kind of all the uh, narrative thrust we really need in a movie that whose narrative is already right. kind of uh, <laughs> obfuscated and difficult to kind of read at face value so I, I don't mind that the, the villain doesn't have a clearly pinpointed right. motivation it's fine by me you know yeah so we've got that final shootout and then uh, with back to to tyler and the birth sequence she gives birth and mm-hmm. he's trying to protect a baby while there's guys coming into the room trying to kill them so like yeah. the woman that just gave birth has a pistol and she's like trying to shoot anybody that walks into the room and he's got a baby and he, he throws the baby in the box across <laughs> the room it's just like it's it's, it's madness like of hard hard boy oh definitely ramp, ramped up like 20 20 more notches it's yeah. just absolutely wild absolutely buck wild yeah, absolutely. Just a phenomenal secret series of action sequences that I think are are some of Troy Hark's best in his filmography. And I, I hope listeners actually seek out this movie. I know we, we've made it sound needlessly confusing, and the movie is quite needlessly confusing, but as a visceral display of Hark's <coughs> ability to present action in these idiosyncratic ways, I yeah. think Tide, Time and Tide is such a cool movie for the year 2000. I think it sort of reflects on what's come before it and also right. sort of showcases a, a style that we'll, we'll try and work towards in the, the end of the 2000s and moving into where we are now. I think there are elements of the display of the craft of what he's working with here that we're still feeling like the, um, the fallout from. Yeah, definitely. I think it's it's also worth going into with that mindset of, of go into mm-hmm. it thinking and knowing I'm not going to be able to make sense of this and don't try necessarily to make sense of it. Kind of mm-hmm. just take it at face value and uh, enjoy those individual sequences and uh, the emotional expression of it for what it is. And I think you'll get a lot more out of it than than hurting your brain trying to uh, <laughs> Which <laughs> plot out, several times plot out every that. single individual thing. But even talking about it, it just makes me want to sit down with the movie again and just to experience yeah. what it is trying to showcase what it's trying to lay down because it is is such a not necessarily outlier for hark's filmography but it feels very just of its own sort of thing definitely many movies in hark's filmography let alone hong kong cinema at large or even action cinema at large that sort of come close to the the very bespoke way of making a movie like this yeah i mean like you said earlier it's it's you can plot out certain things, especially on a rewatch. You pick up these little mm-hmm. details that are threaded throughout it. And it's like, there is a narrative that you can put together. So I think in that way, it just makes it kind of endlessly rewatchable that you can kind of yeah, it's, always it's revisit a, it and get something different out of it. It's a difficult jigsaw to put together, but it's quite entertaining to attempt to put it together. Definitely, and There's more going on within to actually sort of focus on, especially all the the barbaric action that we've tried to describe on this podcast yeah i think we've done a, a pretty pretty solid job of, of getting to uh, um, the core of i it. hope so i feel like <laughs> i feel like i understand the movie a bit better and hopefully the listeners are, are sold on this uh this i hope so troy hark mm-hmm. well jack what do you have for us for next week so it is currently january or as many of you may know it japanuary as hosted by our good friend ben so for the rest of the month, I think we will be continuing to cover some Japanese action films, kind of yeah, go down that route. 
I'm not sure how many episodes we'll get out. We'll try and get a couple of, of Japanese action movies out. And this, my pick for next episode, is probably the oldest movie we'll have covered so far. Um, this series, or this movie and its subsequent series, is synonymous with Japanese action cinema. And I think it's a very interesting conversation to have. It is The Tale of Zatoichi from 1962, directed by Kenji Misumai. And this is a very famous series of sort of samurai movies based out in Japan. It's a series of twenty six movies. Or so that I am, I'm still slowly working through. I've been working. I've been chunk like chipping away at this series for like three or four years now, <laughs> just trying not to. But I won't lie. Some of these movies kind of. Uh, occupy the same space in my brain they do get right. quite samey but it's it's a world i enjoy living in it's the zatoichi who is this blind swordsman slash retired masseuse um going through various shenanigans in like feudal japan shintaro katsu is like this legendary japanese leading man who has played zatoichi for so so many many, yeah. many years and i think it'd be interesting to go back and look at how the action is displayed but also just sort of the the storytelling in this world we haven't really covered sort of period piece japanese stuff in the past yeah. i think it's gonna be a nice a nice way to just sort of touch base with our interest in japanese cinema and try and work out where we can go from there really yeah i am very excited to chat about zatoichi next week so we will see you next week until then you can find us all around the internet Find us on Letterboxd, find us on X or Twitter, find mm -hmm. us on Blue Sky. We're talking about movies all the time. As always, head to thetwingeeks.com for the latest on all kinds of movies. Um, speaking of Hong Kong cinema, I recently reviewed uh, The Goldfinger, which reunited Tony Leung and uh, Andy Lau. It's not very good, but um, <laughs> it is it's what it is. It's a shame, but you could, it is you a shame. could read that piece online, though. Um, and yeah, so we'll be back next episode to talk about the blind swordsman Zatoichi. All right. Thank you, Jack, and we'll see you next week. All right. See you later.